Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Won't be taking calls today. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Prisoner by Marcel Proust. Uh, The Prisoner is volume five of In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust, uh, five of seven. So looking forward to reading that one and sharing it with you uh, next week. The Prisoner by Marcel Proust. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Once Upon a Prime by Sarah Hart. Once Upon a Prime, The Wondrous Connections Between Mathematics and Literature. And this was a a delightful read. I really enjoyed it. Um, Sarah Hart is a a professor of mathematics. She's actually uh, the 33rd Gresham Professor of Geometry, which uh, has been around since 1597, but she's the first woman to hold the post. And in the book, you can feel her love and passion for both mathematics and literature. And so, in in this book, she is showing the connections and the interplay and how there is some uh, poetry and in math and also how there is often math very much impacts literature and writing as well. So um, it's nice when you read a book and you can feel the author's passion in the topic, just like if you're in a class. Uh, we always enjoy it more when the, the teacher or professor is passionate about whatever they're teaching about. You feel that. Also quite funny, I, I found myself laughing often at the jokes she made, um, sometimes of a more nerdy flavor, which actually I like, so I say that as a compliment. Uh, but really did enjoy the book. So um, the book starts with looking at how math impacts structure of literature and poetry. So, for example, when we look at um, poetry, we often see different ways that they have mathematical patterns. For example, iambic pentameter. Um, A lot of Shakespeare's work is written in this where there's ten syllables and an emphasis on, I think it's always the, the second syllable out of the, the pairs of, of ten, or five pairs for ten. Or haiku with five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. Um, and so she shares uh, various books and, and uh, structures that we see in poetry, but also in books, for example, having three parts, and um, how we often see these things and why that uh, might be the case. Um, she also shares how some authors and schools of writing have tried to use math and mathematics even more deeply in their structure. So there was this French school, uh, ULIPO, O-U-L-I-P-O, which is stands for something which is like the potential for literature. And this includes several different writers who um, came up with different, what you can call restrictions to make the patterns, but actually it... Um, give some structure to it. And this is something that is interesting about creativity where there's a, definitely a general sense that you want to take the rules away and allow for an open expression, see what ideas come up, let yourself play. But what we often find is that by 
setting some rules that actually can allow for the play to happen in a better way. We could think of it like uh, if you're watching a soccer match that making you think well let them just run anyway and do anything and not have any rules but having the rules and having a set field with lines actually can allow for the game to be more beautiful in that way so the the structure does not have to be constraining it can actually give some type of form to it and so they did some interesting experiments other people have done these as well for example um, writing a whole book without a certain letter even one author wrote a whole book without the letter E and I think it was in French but similarly like in English it's actually the most common letter so uh, it can be quite challenging to write um, a letter a book without that letter in it or others uh, wrote books the opposite words like no uh, only E's as the vowels so that was the only vowel that was being used so this first section of the book looks at how um, we can see the impact of math and understanding the structure and how that can feel a certain way for us as we're listening to or are reading um, certain pieces of fiction or literature how it gives us some form or structure in that way uh, there's also a whole uh, section looking at how um, there are metaphors or symbols with math so for example numbers and why certain numbers seem to come up a lot three or seven and that it actually might have to do something with them being odd or prime that you can't let's say split things up if it was two um, you know of something or you know six dwarves instead of seven somehow the seven gives some kind of meaning or for example uh, two ways of numbers for example 99 or 999 makes us feel close to some limit but sometimes adding one like a thousand and one Arabian Nights gives us the sense of it's so many so if it was just a thousand maybe that wouldn't feel as much just that one more gives a different sense of of that and in the um, third segment of the book she talks about she calls it mathematics becomes the story and so here it's where the authors often will um, include many aspects of math in their works including mathematicians and you know it might surprise you some of the books that she discusses being so heavily math focused I haven't read Moby Dick which is one of the most famous American novels of all time but there's a lot of references to how math uh, was in Moby Dick from different mathematical concepts um, but even there's an interesting um, dynamic looking at Captain Ahab who I'm just vaguely familiar with the plot of the book but I know that it's this captain who is obsessed with capturing killing this whale Moby Dick who he's encountered before even I think he lost his leg the previous time and now he's trying to find him again and so he, he goes between these two extremes of using math completely and she talks about how often math is looked at as a way that we can control the universe it can help us understand it but sometimes we also think that if we understand the math behind things we can completely control something and so she says Captain Ahab for a while he studies the charts and records whale sightings obsessively convinced that he can predict where Moby Dick will turn up but later as his madness grows he rejects the mathematical calculations of navigation trampling his quadrant into pieces and ultimately sailing on instinct alone mathematics is abandoned leaving us adrift in the ocean so uh, essentially sharing that 
we can get a lot from math, but we can't assume that if we have math or science so we can figure everything out and with that then predict everything and control everything. But we also don't want to go to the other extreme where we completely let go or abandon mathematics altogether or sciences, uh, thinking that because they can't tell us everything or predict everything or control everything, they have no value. That's actually not true at all. So I didn't know about this kind of dilemma that we see um, and, and how prominent it is, or at least to her, she's sharing how important that is in, in, this, in this book. She also shares about mathematicians that have been written about. So sometimes it's characters that are mathematicians that are fictional characters that might be based on actual mathematicians or just or, or, um, a mathematician that's made up fictionalized. And also sometimes where it's actually the, the name of the character is the mathematician. And so um, this part of the book I found interesting because she shared her own reflections herself as a mathematician of how um, mathematicians are portrayed in literature and also in, in media in general. So often it's these cold and calculating individuals or the, the mad genius who has to be bad at everything else uh, and, you know, has to have a bad love life and other types, uh, you know, other aspects of their life because they're so obsessed with their, uh, you know, the math and getting lost in these problems. And it, and it doesn't have to be be that way. Uh, and I related that to that because I often take issue to how uh, mental health professionals are presented in books and in TV and movies. So often um, I've seen psychologists or therapists when they're usually in a um, a movie or show, we see them as doing something unethical or very often they do something unethical, most commonly being romantically or sexually involved with their clients. Just recently, I, a show that I'm watching, I won't spoil it in case people are not quite there in the show, um, a, a couple, we learned that the couple went to therapy, see a couple's therapist, and then now we find out, it's, you know, I don't know, months later, that the therapist is dating the wife and the couple, and the, the husband just find, finds out, or the ex-husband. And so it's unfortunate because I see these things happen and it makes me concerned that it portrays a certain image or expectation or fears in people, for example, if we go to couples therapy, is that going to happen? So no, let's not go. When really that it can happen, but that's not what happens almost all ever. It's a very rare thing that that would happen. Um, so it just gives people an image where we don't have lots of images or portrayals. If you only see a few, and the few you see are a particular way, you assume that's how those individuals are. So she shared how she often finds that mathematicians are portrayed as being either just you know emotionless characters or obsessed with the math to the point where they're evil in a way um, and that she thinks that's unfortunate and not the reality obviously there's people that can be good and bad in every type of field but we don't want to make that the only thing uh, that they are and she shares the portrayals of certain actual mathematicians um, some of which that she liked how they were portrayed and giving bringing attention to them, even sharing how math has been one a type of boys club where it's been almost all men and sometimes there's been these myths about how um, the best, ma best mathematicians have to be men and women can't be great mathematicians. She, of course, disagrees with that and not only disagrees with that in 
the, the idea of it, but in her own who she is. She's a, a uh, prominent math, uh, mathematician and is female. Um, and so she you know, shares in the book, in literature as in life, there are many different ways to be a mathematician as there are different ways to be a person. So we want to see that reflected in, in the, the literature and the media because when we have a certain portrayal that always seems to be the same, we assume that's how those people are. So as I said, that was for me very um, important because I've seen the same thing with how mental health professionals are portrayed, which is bad, of course, just in how they're, they're seen. But even more, it concerns me that people might be afraid to seek out mental health um, professionals, mental health services, because they think they're going to do certain things or, you know, they're trying to find something wrong with you or they're weird in a particular way, which, again, well, you have all of those within that field, just like you have uh, all of uh, any field you look at, you'll have people that are weird or unethical or whatever it might be. That's just humans being human, but not to think that uh, all the people in that field are a certain way. But the book itself is a great uh, portrayal of this relationship between literature and mathematics. And many times throughout the book, she shares how great mathematicians are also in some ways great artists, or there's some poetry and emotion in it. It's not some emotionless field. And that intuition and feelings play a big part in how they might even get their inspiration or that creativity to come up with the ideas that they might figure out how to check or prove, but um, it's not just this pure emotionless uh, endeavor. So I really enjoyed this book. As I said, it was very funny, very entertaining. You can feel her passion about the things she's writing about. Almost you can feel like she was talking to you about them in a way that I really enjoyed. So I hope you'll check it out. It was Once Upon a Prime by Sarah Hart. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Unflicked and talked about something else. So I wanted to talk about it tonight for the rest of the show because um, I've really been thinking about this a lot of avoidance of conflict, how we deal with conflict, and really this understanding that if we don't tolerate and embrace conflict, we can't have good relationships or even really a good society, that we have to be able to embrace and face conflicts as they arise. Uh, even internally, we have conflicts, but when we look at any relationship, any group of people that are living together, there or in a society of all people living together, we obviously cannot always be in agreement, feel the same way, want the same things, have the same opinions. It's just not possible. And actually, it's not even good because over time, if that were the case, there wouldn't be um, the growth that comes with conflicts of of different kind. We need different opinions. We need a diverse viewpoint to actually advance things. But just as a understanding, we have to accept there will be conflict. If you are in a relationship with someone, you hopefully many times will agree and see eye to eye, but there will be many things that you won't agree with that you will see differently, or you'll have different wants, different needs, different expectations, different plans. And so there will be inevitably conflict in that relationship. So I thought of how to put a framework together of understanding our fear of conflict or how we can promote embracing conflict 
more because of how vital it is and how necessary it is and how unavoidable it is. So I'm going to share a three-part model or three qualities that are involved in embracing conflict or they have a vital role in our tendency to avoid or to embrace conflict. And just some note on that, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, it should be like fighting. And it's like, no, you, it's not that you should like conflict. If you're seeking out conflict, that's not a healthy thing and almost always coming from some kind of anger or unresolved conflicts with others in your past that you're now taking out on the people uh, in front of you. So if you're seeking it out, that's not good. That's at one extreme. But what I tend to see much more of is people who are avoiding conflict. So the goal here is to embrace it when that inevitable conflict arises to make sure you don't run away from it and deny that. So the first aspect of this, which is can seem like a general representation of what we're talking about, but to me, I think it's one big aspect, maybe in a foundational one of our tendency to either avoid or embrace conflict. And this is our fear of conflict or the consequences of conflict. So how afraid are we of what happens in a conflict? And how afraid are we of what the consequences of a conflict are? So what does that mean? So the fear of conflict part is how uncomfortable it makes us feel when we're having a disagreement with someone and it's going to be related to the other factors that I'll discuss but how uncomfortable does that make us when there is conflict which is very much related to the second part of the consequences of conflict because what we often find when people are afraid of conflict what they're afraid of is not just the conflict but the consequence that the conflict leads to the end of the relationship that the person won't like them anymore or the person leaves or this friendship, relationship, whatever it is, will no longer exist. And so to understand your own fear level, whether it's a strong fear or a low fear of conflict, it can be good to first check in with yourself. How do you think you feel when a conflict arises? How quick are you to avoid it? And also to look at your own history of conflict, especially starting back to your childhood. What was your home like? Was there a lot of fighting? And was it a lot of ugly fighting or intense, scary fighting, physical violence, um, verbal violence and aggression? And of course, not just between the other members of your household. How was it directed towards you? How tolerant were your parents of a differing viewpoint or disagreement? Was there room for disagreement? Meaning that you could disagree without being afraid of a, a big blow up happening. Could you have that space? So this is really the most foundational part of it, this fear or our expectations of the conflict. What do we feel about having a disagreement with someone? And for most of us, of course, it's not going to feel good, but you want to look at how intense is that? And often when this comes up, let's say with a client in therapy or if I'm having a discussion about this fear of a relationship ending. Most people say, oh, come on, I don't think, you know, my mom's not going to talk to me anymore or this, my girlfriend's going to break up with me or my husband's going to leave me if we have one fight. I don't think that. And on the surface, we usually won't think that way. Rarely does someone think if I have one fight, it's going to lead to a breakup or the end of this relationship. But we can see that there is this sense that 
the conflict leads to something very deep happening in the relationship. Maybe it's just that they won't like us anymore, so now they hate us. Or maybe it means that we actually do break up, but maybe it's not going to happen now. It's going to happen later if I make that fight happen now. So it doesn't necessarily mean consciously you go into it thinking an argument will lead to the end of the relationship. It could be something more unconscious. And often, actually, people will feel that because many things can lead to this. One is if you saw conflicts that were incredibly scary and intense and violent, then, of course, it can feel like this would lead to the end of the relationship. So we can understand that person being afraid of conflict, not feeling like that's something that they can face. And also, there could be this sense that if you didn't have room to disagree, as I was saying before, you could feel like if I disagree or if I don't go along with whatever the other person is saying, they're going to dislike me, they're going to hate me. And so this is part of a people-pleaser type of complex where you feel that people like you for always being pleasant. People like you because you never make them upset. You never make them mad. You never make them feel bad. And so if that's how you have experienced yourself because you didn't have that space to do those things, then you're going to expect that other people will see you the same way too. The only reason people like me is because I'm nice and good. And so I always have to make sure I'm good or else they won't like me. And this makes us incredibly afraid of doing something that the other person won't like. So if something comes up and we're upset about something, we feel something they did we don't like or something's going on that we don't feel good about, it creates this dilemma for that person because, well, I don't feel good and I don't like this, but if I bring it up, I'm afraid the other person really won't like this and because of that won't like me and then I don't want to deal with that, so what do I do? And so very often people who are people pleasers who almost by definition are going to avoid conflicts, they'll hold it in. You know, we're good at coming up with reasons to avoid, oh, you know, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, this happens all the time or I'll get over it. Or, you know, a classic when people do is they go to, well, it could have been, it could be worse, right? You know, you know, he did something or she did something I don't like. Other people have abusive partners that do really bad things. So I should actually be grateful for what I have. This is a big uh, trick we play on ourselves when we're feeling something and we don't like it, if we're trying to avoid the conflict, a great way to get out of it is to say, it could be so much worse, other people have it worse. And so because of that, I shouldn't say anything. And so sometimes when I hear this from people, I give them the example that if you were, you know, in your house and you could be grateful for your house, but if you stand up and stub your toe against the side of the bed, it's going to hurt. And you can't just say, well, I have this nice house and other people don't get even to live in a home and I, I this, my leg doesn't hurt, my toes don't hurt. No, of course, they, they hurt like hell. And you're probably going to scream and say something in that moment because they hurt and that's okay. Don't feel that you have to, you know, pretend like it doesn't hurt because you have this these things you're grateful for. Um, as I've mentioned before, you can be grateful for something overall, but also be upset about that same thing in the moment. You um, love your partner, something happens, and you're upset with them. You're grateful for them, but right now you're upset about something they did. 
okay, I'm grateful I have this car, but if you know it, you crash into it or something happens, you might be annoyed by what's going on with the car. And you can't just say, well, I have to just be grateful for it. I can't ever complain. And that's really where people go to is this sense of, if I'm grateful for something, I can never complain about that thing in any way. And I, I very much disagree with that because that's not genuine and authentic and that's not real. And not only that, um, it comes with this place of fear of conflict that bringing something up is always worse than bringing it up when I don't see that at all being the reality. If you're in a healthy relationship, you actually want to bring things up. And so I actually bring this up to couples that say, you know, they might say, well, I don't want to upset her. I don't want to upset him by bringing something up that bothered me. And I can understand that. But I let them know that if your intention is to bother them, then yes, that's not good. That means you actually are not saying something because you're upset. You're saying something because you want to make them upset or take out some anger on them. But instead, you're bringing something up because you love them so much, not because you don't love them. Because you love them, because you love your relationship, you actually want to make sure there isn't something between you and them that there isn't something you're hiding from them or that you're keeping from them and that you want to make sure that the relationship stays as strong as it can by ensuring there's no debris, emotional debris or resentment that's building up because we're not facing the issues. So we have to, at times, change the paradigm we have about conflict away from this sense that it's a bad thing that we have to avoid to this thing that it's something that inevitably will come up. And when it does, it's all about how we will be facing it. How will we talk about that issue that is important? So it can be good to look at yourself and how afraid of conflict are you? Just the thought of it or the experience of it, how uncomfortable does it make you? And how afraid are you of the consequences of conflict? Have you had many relationships where there was fights, arguments, but things were okay. You got over them. Or did you grow up in a home where conflict was really avoided and when it did happen, it was very, very ugly? And unfortunately, this is a very common experience that people have that they'll say, uh, you know, no one really fought. They held things in. But when they finally said something, it was really ugly. And this is also what happens when we avoid conflict because we can only avoid it for so long. Over time, the resentment builds up, that issue starts to irk us even more, and now we explode. The, the common thing people do is they say, oh, you've done this 100 times. But sometimes we realize we didn't say anything the first 99 times, but somehow expect that the person should have known and stopped doing it, but we can't have that expectation. So it can be good to think of what conflict feels like to you, what the experience was like, and do you really have this belief that by bringing it up, something good can happen? Because sometimes people bring things up almost with this fear, they're bracing for the impact. Well, you did this, because like, they think that if they're saying something, it has to be super extreme or the other person has to get so mad. But we can bring something up with kindness and love to someone we care about. You know, something happened that upset me the other day. I want to talk to you about it. And still, even with that type of kindness and love and calm um, expression, people tend to get defensive because they also have a fear of conflict or they have a fear of um, being told they were wrong or did something wrong. So they might still get defensive, but we have to risk that and go into the conflict. And so first it's about what's our level of conflict fear and what is our expectations of the consequences of conflict. So this is the first of three. And then after the break, I'll, I'll talk about the other two 
qualities that I think are very vital when it comes to our ability to face and embrace conflict and to not avoid conflict. So let's go to a commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the qualities related to embracing conflict. So the first one is about what is our fear of conflict and the consequences of conflict. So the lower that is, the better as far as embracing conflict. The second one is our frustration tolerance, or people will also call it distress tolerance, which is related to this fear of conflict because people who have a low frustration tolerance will likely have a higher fear, will feel things more strongly about everything, but it isn't one and the same. So what is frustration tolerance? This to me is actually a pillar of mental health that often people might overlook. Because usually when people think of that often people might overlook. Because usually when people think of mental health, they think of being happy. They want to feel good. And so because of that, the assumption is that mental health means feeling good. So if you feel bad, you have to quickly get rid of that bad feeling. Okay, if you feel bad, what are your coping skills and coping mechanisms? Which is very important because how we deal with feeling bad is critical to our overall well-being. If you uh, feel bad and then you take it out on other people, that's going to hurt your relationships. If you make compulsive decisions, you'll hurt yourself in a variety of ways, whether it's uh, spending money or taking substances or doing something that's bad. That's not going to be good. So coping mechanisms are very, very important when it comes to how we deal with our feelings. And always the difficult thing with coping mechanisms is, unfortunately, the unhealthy ones work better in the short term than the healthy ones in the sense that if you're feeling bad and you can take a substance or let's say reach out to an ex that you had a toxic relationship with you will feel better more quickly than if you go for a walk or talk to a friend or do some other things that might be helpful but more slowly make you feel better Um, the way i like to think of it is like if you're very very cold you ideally will slowly warm up. That's actually the healthier way, not to just like go into a microwave and get cooked. Now you're warm, but uh, in not a healthy way, and there's consequences you're going to face for that. So uh, it is important what you decide to do when you're feeling bad. That does matter. But another element when we talk about coping skills is how long can I just sit with an uncomfortable feeling when it comes up? And for most of us, that's a very... Uh, difficult thing to do so we can get it it doesn't feel good but that's what I'm talking about here is how long can you handle not feeling good so by definition it's not pleasant but how long can you tolerate that that's actually um, a sign a big sign an indicator of your mental health I remember a few years back I saw someone do an exercise to display this and I did it on the air which is kind of funny because uh, as you'll hear it's a a visual thing but um, to hold an ice cube in your hand and to let it melt and so you put the ice cube in your hand and of course your hand gets very cold actually painfully cold so you feel this pain and I remember when I actually did this exercise the person let us know your hand won't get hurt because when you feel pain that's the fear is what if you cause some kind of damage but uh, nothing's going to happen to your hand it just might won't feel good and so you have to sit there and just let the ice cube melt in your hand 
and it hurts and it doesn't feel good and you feel the water coming off the side of your hand and you're thinking, okay, maybe this is stupid, I can just stop. But there is this important lesson there that it doesn't feel good and you do it, it takes a few minutes, but then you're still okay. And so this is a really big lesson to hold on to that when I feel good even, but also when I don't feel good, that feeling doesn't last forever. No feeling lasts forever. They can come and go. And so sometimes they can last longer than others, but overall no feeling lasts forever. And so if we're not feeling good, yes, yeah, sometimes if it's something we can do something about, you can do something about it. So let's say if you're physically not feeling good and you see, oh, there's something poking in my side, you can move away from that thing or move the thing away from you that's poking. But sometimes you have a headache and Maybe you can take something for it, but sometimes you have to wait a little bit and just understand that it's going to hurt for a little while, but it'll get better. It'll get okay. And so I see this with how parents interact with their kids. And of course, it's a reflection of how they feel about feeling bad themselves, but that they will see their child is sad and they freak out. Uh, sometimes I like to say a crisis with the first I becoming a Y, that as soon as a child cries, it becomes a crisis. Oh my God, this is really bad. They start panicking and, and really they'll do anything just to make the child feel better. Give them something, give them a, a snack, break the rules if they're not supposed to play with some toy at this time, whatever it is, just because we have to do anything to get rid of this bad feeling. And so, of course, the motivation is good. Our child feels bad. Let's help them feel good. I can totally get that. But we have to recognize what are we doing in the long term. Yes, short term, they're feeling better, but we're doing a few things that are not good. First, in our reaction to their bad feeling, we're showing them that what they're feeling, what they're going through is something really bad. So if something makes you sad or something makes you upset, this is a huge deal. This is horrible. We have to avoid it at all costs and do anything to get away from it. So we're teaching our child that these uncomfortable, unpleasant feelings are really scary and bad things, which is unfortunate because they are inevitably a part of life. And anytime they want to do something that requires growth, it won't feel good. They'll have to tolerate feeling bad if they want to grow in any way, if they want to work on something. It'll always be more fun to do something else. Well, in that moment, it'll feel better to do something else. Let's say if they're homework or studying. And we're teaching them that the better thing to do is whatever feels good in the moment. So contrary to what might seem like, okay, the best thing is to make them feel good the fastest, often what's more helpful is to show them that you empathize that they're feeling bad. And you might even help them soothe how they're feeling, especially if they're younger, but that you also know they're going to be okay. So I think this is a really nice balance. Let's say the child uh, scrapes their knee and they come back to their their parent and they're crying. So of course you want to show you care. You want to say, oh, who cares? You're going to feel better soon. You want to hold them. You say, oh, you hurt your knee. Oh, that looks like it hurts. But there's something in how you're comforting them that shows that you know they're going to be okay. But if you react in, oh my God, what if, what if you broke your knee? What if you're never going to get better? That, that makes them freak out, right? Because you're showing them, I don't have this belief that you're going to be okay. So I know you're not feeling good. I care that you're not feeling good, but I also know you're going to be okay. So I'm not freaking out and that'll help you get comforted not to freak out. Um, you know, kids always look to their parents to see 
how they should be feeling or how scary something is because they don't really know. You've all seen this before. A kid falls, they look to their mom or their dad. And if the mom or dad freaks out, they freak out too. If the mom or dad's like, you're good, they're usually like, okay, I'm good. And they keep playing. Um, it reminds me of uh, being on an airplane. And if you have turbulence, sometimes, you know, feel scary. You don't know how safe it is or how much usually they say turbulence is nothing to be worried about. But sometimes when it's more intense, you might have a moment where you freak out. And I usually will look to um, the flight attendants or other staff because they kind of know. If you see them freaking out, then I'll probably freak out. But if they seem calm, they know that, okay, they've been through this a million times before. What we're going through is we're going to be okay. This is just the way planes work when they're working quite fine. So how you show your child to feel about feeling bad is really important. We don't want to show them that you run away from it and you do whatever you can when you feel bad. We want to show them that it's going to be okay. You don't feel good. I care about that. But I also know that you'll be fine and it'll take some time. So this is a very important thing because to have a conflict, we have to embrace not feeling good. Because it doesn't feel good to disagree or to talk about something we disagree about. It's much more pleasant to avoid it or to talk about something else. And so in the moment, that's usually what we do. We avoid that uncomfortable conversation. So in order to embrace conflict, we have to be willing to tolerate this distress, this frustration, this discomfort that we're feeling. So that's the second quality of embracing conflict, our frustration or distress tolerance. The third quality that I, I think is vital is our self-other emotional orientation. So what does that mean? This means when we're in a interaction or just our general orientation, how much are we focused on ourselves and how much are we focused on other people or in a, in a two-person interaction, the other person? Because people have a range on this, a spectrum, where some people are too self-focused they think about themselves and they don't think about the other person so they might do something hurting the other person and they don't care well i like doing this or i wanted to do this so i'm doing it and that person would be selfish or more on the narcissistic side but unfortunately there's people on the other side too that can be too other focused so if they are interacting with others or when it comes to their wants or their needs, they might completely put their own away to make sure that other people are okay. And this, as I mentioned, these different factors are very interrelated. Someone who's a people pleaser will also tend to be very other focused. They won't be thinking about themselves. Do I like this? Am I okay? Um, are my needs being met? And they'll be preoccupied with making sure the other person is okay. And this also is likely due to childhood experiences of their own wants and needs not being um, responded to in a positive way, especially if it disagreed with the other person. So if they wanted something and their parent wanted something, it didn't matter what they wanted. And so if we had many experiences like that, we learn to disown our own feelings, our own wants and our own needs to make sure the other person is okay. Because if they're not okay, the world is falling apart. If my parents are not okay, I, I'm not going to be okay. Um, since I use the plane analogy, the analogy I think related to this is if you were flying and if your pilot thought you were flying okay, but you thought you were about to hit a mountain, you would rather your pilot was right than you. So you'd rather assume they are right and forget about what you're seeing. And so kids from a young age, when their parents are doing something not okay, 
they unfortunately tend to think they're missing something or they're not getting it. So they internalize the sense that they're wrong and their parent is right because it's safer to think the people who are in power and control and taking care of us, they know what's going on and they're okay rather than maybe it's easier just to think, well, I'm wrong or I don't know what's going on. So if we're about to have a conflict, if we're so focused on the other person being right and making sure they're okay, or if we feel so responsible for how they feel, then we're going to avoid conflict or do very poorly in conflict. Because even if we bring something up because we get so frustrated, then as soon as the other person has some feelings, we totally become about them. Oh, you're right. No, no, I didn't even, I shouldn't even mention anything. You're right. I, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't actually feel that way or whatever it is to abandon ourselves to make sure the other person is okay. So again, going over those three factors, the first one is our fear of conflict or the fear of the consequences of conflict, which we can have a huge range on. How comfortable are we about that? The second one is our frustration or distress tolerance. How much can I tolerate feeling uncomfortable? Because if I cannot tolerate that, or if I'm always going away from that, then I'll always go away from conflicts because conflict will always feel less comfortable than going away from that. And as I mentioned, these are interrelated, but they're not exactly the same thing because there's some people who might be okay having a conflict and having that conversation, um, but they might not want to feel sad. So they might not have a fear of conflict or the consequences of conflict, but they still might have a low distress tolerance that they, for example, if they're very sad, they might not um, tolerate that or they might react to it very strongly. So these are interrelated concepts for sure, but they're not one and the same. And then the third one is our self-other emotional orientation. How much are you focused on your own feelings and needs and wants, and how much are you focused on those of the other? And depending on where you are on this continuum, it could affect how much you will face and embrace conflict. If you are very much other-focused, it'll be scary for you to embrace conflict. If you're actually very self-focused, you might have, you might be aggressive when it comes to conflict. Look for it because you don't mind making someone else feel bad and your needs feel so important that you don't really see that. So actually this would lead to having too much conflict going to the other extreme. So those are just some thoughts on what I think is a vital um, aspect of human experience, human relationships, human society, that we embrace conflict and not avoid it, even though most of us have a tendency to avoid it, which is why I wanted to talk about it tonight. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Big thank you to Ghazal here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olaqui, Zan Zendegi Azadi. <laughs>